This is the seventh and last day of this uh, December Rohatsu 1979 session. <coughs> Today we will work on a koan from the Blue Rock Records, number 38, Foketsu and the Dharma Seal. <coughs> The case reads, at the government headquarters in Yingchao, Fuketsu took the high seat and said, <coughs> the Dharma seal of the patriarchs functions like the iron ox. When the seal is removed, an impression is left. When left there, the impression is ruined. But if you wish neither of them should you or should you not press the seal down? <clears throat> At this time, a senior monk, Rohi, came forward and said, I have the function of the iron ox. I ask you not to impress the seal. Fukutsu said, Accustomed to scouring the oceans, <coughs> fishing for whales, <coughs> I regret to find instead a frog crawling in the muddy sand. Rohi stood there thinking. <laughs> Fuketsu gave a shout and said, Why don't you go on with what you were going to say? Rohi hesitated, whereupon Fuketsu hit him with his whisk and said, Do you still remember the words? Try to quote them. As Rohi was about to open his mouth, Fuketsu hit him again with his whisk. The governor said, The Buddha's law and the king's law are the same. Fuketsu said, Why do you say that? The governor said, When punishment is called for, it should not be neglected. Otherwise, one invites trouble. Fuketsu descended from the seat. <clears throat> Fuketsu was quite a well-known uh, of course Fuketsu is the Japanese pronunciation of his Chinese name <clears throat> his dates are 896 to 973 and he was in the line of Linchi or Rinzai this, this governor was a, a follower of Fuketsu. And he often asked him <coughs> to uh, lecture to himself and to his officials. <coughs> now it says that <coughs> we might point out that at this time, uh, this being the apogee of of Zen in China, uh, many high government officials were practicing Zen. And of course, there were many outstanding masters uh, and who had as disciples these officials. <coughs> and not only <coughs> the officials themselves, but also their, those uh, working under them also would take instruction. <coughs> In 
Perhaps one day we will see that same thing in this country and other countries in the West. Now it says he took the high seat <clears throat> in Zen it was customary that when a master gave a gave a tea show, he would either sit this way facing the Buddha or else he would sit right in front of the Buddha. If he sat in front of the Buddha looking out, <clears throat> usually this would be taken to understand that he was in the place. He was taking the place of the Buddha. If one is facing toward the Buddha, then usually it is taken that one is offering up to the Buddha the Dharma as the Master understands it and in effect asking for the Buddha's approval or criticism. <clears throat> These high seats <clears throat> uh, are very interesting affairs. Uh, we saw them in Japan uh, some of them were quite quite beautiful, very imposing kind of seats, some of them very plain. <clears throat> it probably depended upon the master and upon the temple. If it was a very temple had many, many lavish things, it was probably a very ornate, almost like a throne. If the master was, a, particularly in Zen, a simple person, then it would be a, a simple kind of seat. <clears throat> But being higher, high seat does not mean that this is not putting the master in the position of being higher than the, uh, than the assembly, the people who are listening. But rather, just as the, uh, in one sense, the Buddha stands above all of us, in another sense, and this is why he's usually put on an altar, uh, and of course this means that our true nature is central, is the best part of us, so to say. In fact, it's all of us that's important. <clears throat> and he said, he took the high seat and he said, the Dharma seal of the patriarchs functions like the iron ox. <clears throat> the iron ox was a, a huge dam which had been built some uh, told some 4,000 years ago by a legendary emperor, Yu, to stem the waters of the Yellow River, which were constantly over-flooding and causing tremendous loss of life and damage. And it was so large that it, the head was in one province and the, <clears throat> the tail <clears throat> was in another. Other translators or other commentators interpret the iron ox to to be uh, that that is historically that it wasn't like a dam but rather uh, it was a deity that had been built uh, and the deity it was hoped would stem the waters of the yellow river very likely the first interpretation is uh, is the better one and because this iron ox, it got the name iron ox, this dam, because it had four legs. And so people actually called it the iron ox. <clears throat> he 
here, the iron ox, stands for our true mind. It is unshakable, immovable. When the seal is removed, an impression is left. Before we get to that, the, <clears throat> the Dharma seal of the patriarchs <coughs> this is said to be the seal, the Dharma seal. Of course, this doesn't mean a physical thing, uh, which was brought by Bodhidharma. When Bodhidharma sanctioned Hui Ko to become his Dharma heir, well, he placed upon him, so to say, the Dharma seal. We'll say a little more, uh, we'll say more a little later about the physical aspects of a Dharma seal or the so-called Inca Shome. <clears throat> when the seal is removed, an impression is left. Our mind in its normal functioning <clears throat> leaves, leaves traces way most people live, they are leaving traces, unlike a child which goes from one activity to another without leaving any traces. It gets, it gets hurt, it cries, and the next minute it's laughing, and the next minute it's uh, jumping around, and uh, it's a wonderful thing to see the way children play together. Nothing clings to them. With grown-ups, on the other hand, it is different. When we're criticized, usually we resent it. We're praised, we tend to wallow in the praise, tell other people about it, or keep telling ourselves about it. A Zen person has to develop this quality of, on the one hand, if one is in a teaching position or a parent, and criticizing to make it clean without any leftovers or when praising to make it clean. Usually in Zen, people do not praise. You find the masters again and again saying in various kinds of ways. Of course, the Chinese have this wonderful indirect style. Uh, talk about not praising people in, to their faces. In our culture, this is considered to be a, quite a proper thing. Very few, very few people stop to realize how this tends to build up ego. <clears throat> but praise and blame, when it has to be given, should be done cleanly and sharply. And in the same way in, <clears throat> in living our life, to go from one thing to the next, many koans which... Uh, illustrate this and make us try to live in this kind of way. The same with awakening. When we come to awakening, we got to get rid of it. If we cling to our awakening, then it is bad. We mess things up. 
the more we the more we cherish our awakening the less it operates in our life Dogen, then Master Dogen has a line, passage where he talks about, about fish go through the water and birds go through the air without leaving any traces. It's not easy to go through life this kind of way. But when we see somebody who does things in a very clean, precise kind of way, not mechanically, not in a, not in a harsh, jerky kind of way, something very beautiful about a clean action. And there's something very beautiful about a person who has come to awakening, has got rid of it, and operates in the same kind of way, and functions in his daily life, When we say that children move about this way and that Zen is Zen training develops this quality, we are not we are not saying, of course, that well, in a sense we are. We're saying that the developed Zen person is very childlike in that respect. The difference, of course, is that there is the capacity to of reflection in the adult, which there isn't in the child. But if you wish neither of them, should you or should you not press the seal down? We can take this also as meaning uh, subjectivity and objectivity. <coughs> when one is, <coughs> in the sense that one is fully, fully one with what is doing, there is no objective awareness. So long as there is an object standing against us and we are aware of it, then we are in duality. How do you get beyond subjectivity and objectivity? How do you get beyond having awakening and getting rid of awakening? This is, this is Zen training. In Zen, <coughs> there is what is called Inca Shome, which is a, a paper, usually a calligraphic, calligraphic rather, uh, testament of one's teacher, saying with, with Ken Cho, one's first enlightenment, one gets uh, a piece of calligraphy, Later, when one has finished the koans and the teacher is satisfied that a disciple can teach, well, one gets another kind of uh, paper, also a calligraphy. At its best, 
Perhaps this system was a kind of a guarantee to the public of a teacher's authenticity. Because always depend, everything depends on the teacher himself, just how authentic the teacher is. <clears throat> Otherwise, his, his calligraphy doesn't mean very much. It's a good deal, perhaps, like uh, going to what kind of a school you get a diploma from. You, if you graduate from, let's say, medicine in a small college in Podunk, uh, it's it's quite different from getting a uh, getting a diploma from the Harvard Medical School. We purposely picked Harvard, of course. <laughs> And speaking about medical doctors, <laughs> when one goes into the office of uh, particularly a specialist, one sees the wall all kinds of diplomas, all of which are intended, of course, to impress the poor patient. <laughs> and of course, the more diplomas, the more the doctor can charge. <clears throat> there's, an interesting, there's an interesting little story where this the man from the country and his wife went, was sent by a doctor to a specialist. And when they got in, in the office while they were waiting in the waiting room, he saw all of these, about 15 diplomas. And he said to his wife, come on, let's get out of here. <laughs> and she said, she said, why? And he said, this man must be awful stupid to have to go to so many schools in order to... <clears throat> One of the best doctors we ever met was a man who didn't even have a diploma in his office. Developed the kind of sensitivity that one needs real to do real healing. Has nothing to do with getting a diploma. We once were told by a doctor that we respected very much that, that when a doctor orders lots of tests the more diplomas the doctor has, apparently, the more tests that he feels confident of order, ordering on a patient. But a real first-class doctor gets very little or very few, very few tests. He has his own intuition, his own sensitivity, which he's able to, to diagnose, whereas a man that doesn't have this kind of thing needs all kinds of tests. <clears throat> In the same way with a teacher. Especially in Japan today, the, syst the system has declined drastically. That is to say, uh, the genuineness. After having been in Japan, uh, Buddhism having been in Japan for some 900 years, it's become rigid and petrified. There are all kinds of uh, fraudulent practices that are going on. In some respects, it's a good deal like the Middle Ages just before Luther or the kind of abuses that Luther tried to overcome where, where people were buying penances or indulgences, whatever it was, and the priests were 
growing fat on the money that they were making. And perhaps that kind of thing. Uh, but certainly, uh, people that get through, go through the whole Quran uh, system in no time at all, a teacher practically gives them every Quran without demanding any kind of help from the student. When we were, <coughs> when we were in Japan, uh, a certain professor, he was a Fulbright scholar, came over. <coughs> he was very much interested in practicing Zen. We became acquainted and and he was told to go see a certain retired Roshi in Kyoto. And he was taken there by <coughs> a Zen priest, a man who had a temple with a family and spoke good English. He acted as this man's, as this uh, professor's uh, interpreter. And they used to go to this retired Roshi's quarters and they went through, I was living at that time with this fellow, and he told me this, when he would come back, he would go three times a week to the Roshi's uh, place, and he was given, given the answer, the whole Mumonkan. This took about a month, and about two months. And uh, he said to me, that is the, this, this professor, <coughs> he said, I don't know what I'm doing here, he said, the Roshi did, however, say to him at the end, he said, now you must understand that you are not enlightened. Well, this, the professor said, well, why did you give me, tell me all of these answers? Well, he said, you're a foreigner, you don't speak Japanese. And he said, I wanted you to know, uh, because this was the only way that you could get it, uh, I wanted you to know what the Mumon Khan was about. At least he had the good grace to tell him that he was not enlightened. Well, this had just the opposite effect. This man became, the professor became very disgusted. Uh, and he quit, in a short time after that, he quit Zen. He was also, by the way, paying the interpreter uh, a fee each time that he went uh, to see the Roshi. Very likely the Roshi didn't get any part of this. Probably was taken care of by the temple. But certainly the interpreter was paid a very good a very good fee, and this is one case. There are many other cases where uh, people are passed with practically no effort at all. Even in the monasteries, people are non nominally one is supposed to spend three months, uh, rather three years in the Zen temples. Three years is considered to be the length of time that one stays in a, before one is qualified to take over uh, a temple. One at least needs this basic kind of training. Well, there are very few monks these days that will stay three years, and they have lots of ways of getting out of it, which paying money is uh, one of them. Well, <clears throat> so that Whereas the, the idea of giving Inca Shome was intended to protect the public, in the end it, it becomes almost worthless, particularly these days. This is not to say that there are, not, there are not fine teachers in Japan. There are, and of course they don't do this kind of thing, but there are so many of the other kind that uh, one just cannot rely upon these kind of things. 
There are teachers also who, who have Inka Shomei from three or four masters. And they, one wonders how they were able so quickly to get through all of the koans. And here too, the same kind of uh, system is operating. This does not mean that <coughs> this does not mean that the koan, working on koans, has no validity. One must be careful about about titles and about uh, Inka Shome diplomas. Well, now let's continue here. <coughs> <coughs> then the, the case continues. <coughs> At this time, a senior monk, Rohi, came forward and said, <coughs> I have the function of the iron ox. I ask you not to impress the seal. I have the function of the iron ox. What does he mean by that? Don't we all have the function of the iron ox? I don't need your seal. Could he possibly mean something else? <clears throat> There is, there is in, in Zen, as most of you know, what is called in Japanese Buji Zen. This is a Zen that is uh, what in the Three Pillars of Zen, Haradaroshi calls a Zen without content. That is to say, the belief that enlightenment is unnecessary. Since we are all inherently enlightened, why is it necessary to 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 go through all of the painful training to become what you've always been. What is, why does one need any kind of sanction from a teacher to say that you're enlightened? Isn't enlightenment self-validating? And then Fuketsu says, accustomed to scouring the oceans, fishing for whales, I regret to find instead of frog crawling in the muddy sand. The speed with which the masters could bring out these kind of <laughs> suggests that studying poetry was part of Zen training. <clears throat> <coughs> but at the same time, we have to be grateful to the masters for this, for this type of speech, which is so, which was peculiar to the Chinese in ancient China. Otherwise, it would be impossible to have. Uh, to work on cons. If a spade, if everything, if a spade was called a spade, much less a damn old shovel, you just couldn't have any Dharma dialogues. <coughs> In other words, if the master said, I'm used to having somebody that's got deep enlightenment come and speak to me. Somebody like you who's just got a mere whisper, this is an unnerving experience. <laughs> you, you, you can see, you can see it's a completely different effect. 
accustomed to scouring the oceans fishing for whales, I regret to find instead a frog crawling in the muddy sand. Why does, why does Fuketsu say this? What does he see here? Is he, is he, why is he putting down this monk? Has this monk anything on the ball or hasn't he? And Rohi stood there thinking. Fuketsu gave a shout and said, why don't you go on with what you were going to say? In Zen, the live remark is very much, is very much esteemed. Well, it's interesting how words take on different meanings. Originally, live remark meant to make a lively, uh, an appropriate retort. Then later on, it came, it took just the opposite meaning. And a live remark meant a, an intellectual remark. And the dead remark uh, meant a, one that went beyond intellectuality. But let's take this in the, uh, the meaning, the original meaning of um, uh, the a quick response. Now, what is what is Fuketsu trying to do here? Is he trying to put him in his place, or is he trying to give him a place? Oh, he hesitated. Whereupon he hit him. Fuketsu hit him with his whisk. He who hesitates is lost. Or, as some wit said, he who hesitates is bossed. And this is, what, this is what's happening. <coughs> he hesitated and forgets to hit him. What is that hit with the whisk indicating? Do you remember the words? Try to quote them. And then as Rowie was about to open his mind, forgets to hit him again. We see here that the, the masters are relentless. They are cruel only to be kind. <coughs> Somebody else, one hit would have been enough. Come on, now where's the answer? Give me the answer, man. But Fuketsu keeps hitting him. Is he trying to get some kind of an answer out of him? Does he sense that Rohi's mind is ripe for something much deeper? Or is he saying, in effect, Antawa Damades, which in Japanese means you're no good. The governor said, the Buddha's law and the king's law are the same. Fuketsu said, why do you say that? The governor said, when punishment is called for, it should not be neglected. Otherwise, one invites trouble. Fuketsu descended from the seat. <clears throat> what is the Buddha's law? And what is the king's law? <coughs> the Buddha's law, the law of causation. Nothing can happen in this world without causation. Every effect has an antecedent cause. And every effect becomes, in turn, the cause of other effects, and so on. There's no punishment. If there is punishment, 
We're being punished by our own karma, which is to say, we're punishing ourselves for the for the painful deeds that we, the painful things we did to ourselves and to others. In this sense, we can say to him, in this sense, every aggressor becomes the victim of his own aggression. The king's law would be the ordinary, ordinary law. Well, king's perhaps is different from ordinary law, but as he says here, when punishment is called for, it should not be neglected. Of course, this is not this is not wrong. <clears throat> There's a time and a place for everything. If we if we punish or praise, not punish or chide, perhaps criticize at the wrong time and at the wrong place. It's worse than having said nothing. It's worse than having said anything at all. Much better would be to say nothing. It's very important. This is, this is very much part of Zen training. To find the right time for whatever one says and does. We must understand that the Zen, that the koans, do not deal, do not deal with the so-called ethical aspect. They go right to the basis in which, in which ethics and morality is grounded, namely our true mind. All of the cons are intended to wake us up to this mind. When this mind is functioning, then ethical behavior flows from it as a matter of course. On the other hand, if you start from the ethical behavior, then one is always uncertain. One can never be sure of what is right and what is wrong. Ketsu descends from the seat. What more can I say? He's probably implying. <clears throat> now there is a there is a <clears throat> a introduction to this uh, to this case as there is to all of them, and it reads as follows: the introduction is not. Uh, the koan itself was com uh, was compiled by Setcho, and the compiler of the introductions is Engo. These are two different Chinese masters. And Engo's introduction is, when one adopts the gradual method, though it is not normal, one can nevertheless be on the right road. And in the busiest marketplace, one will be able to enjoy unhindered movement. This term gradual and abrupt is used in many senses in Zen training. <clears throat> we got a hint of that in, in reading from the Hanshan or Poshan uh, a few days ago. The gradual method or what uh, Poshan <clears throat> called the the Wu understanding, where one through <clears throat> through training through <clears throat> work on the koans, uh, and of course zazen, achieving samadhi-like conditions, samadhi conditions, 
one not only builds up an understanding which is different from what might be called intellectual understanding. And one develops, <coughs> one develops a, uh, and working on the koans, even though one has not, has not have uh, what may be called a, uh, a thoroughgoing by any means, just, uh, just a glimpse into one's uh, true mind. One can still, nevertheless, particularly if one practices Zazen regularly, one develops a great deal of strength and insight so that one is able to function uh, to function in many situations on a level which is considerably uh, higher and better than someone who has not had any Zen training. Nevertheless, this is still different from somebody that has a, a genuine awakening, a full-blown awakening. That, that awakening removes all doubt. In the other, in the first, uh, when one is faced with a real, uh, well, tough, traumatic situation, one could still be thrown. Although, again, not perhaps quite the same way as one that doesn't have at least the, the jodiki which comes from zazen. But one can never be absolutely sure. One is still, uh, well, can be shaken in certain circumstances. <clears throat> then, then in Gogazan, say, when one adopts the sudden method, one leaves behind no trace, and even the thousand Buddhas cannot spy one out. This, of course, is talking about full enlightenment or at least a full-blown full-blown may not, not necessarily because the term full enlightenment is at best an ambiguous term actually there's no such thing as a full enlightenment there's no end as, as Dogen as Dogen says there's no beginning to practice an end to enlightenment there's no beginning to enlightenment an end to practice but these terms are used tentatively, arbitrarily, provisionally. <coughs> Even the thousand Buddhas cannot spy one out. <coughs> this is another way of saying that one moves like an ordinary man. You remember in the Three Pillars of Zen, in the, uh, I think it's the fourth, third or the fourth uh, picture, the ox herding, of the ox herding pictures, where the comment there is made that uh, of this Zen master, uh, before he reached, <clears throat> he was doing Zen, he was doing Zazen very arduously, day and night, and uh, the birds used to bring him sort of offerings which they would drop at his doorstep. But then when he became fully enlightened, they no longer did that. There's a footnote there <clears throat> where it is said that in Zen, <clears throat> as long as there are any marks of saintliness about a person, as long as you can say that this person is a highly developed person, this person is a, is a saint or whatever, that person's realization Realization, of course, means more than just enlightenment. It means in integrating into his daily life. 
is still deficient. That's why in Zen there's no such thing as saints. It is only when you can't say anything about such a person. It's just like the sun. You like to be in it. You don't know why. What can you say about the sun? In the same way, with such a person, even the Buddhas can't spy one out. Such a, can't spy out such a person and say, he is a highly developed person. Then we have it now. How about when one uses neither the gradual nor the sudden method? A word is sufficient to the wise as a flick of the whip is to a fine horse. Taking such a course, who can be the master? <coughs> One who is able to respond in every situation has no use for terms like sudden and gradual. There's no intentionality. He moves through things like a fine horse moves. The slightest response is movement. Again, as we said, it's a beautiful thing to see such a highly developed person. And speaking of uh, such persons, we say highly developed, there are no words to describe them, really. It has always been the object of Zen training, at least in Japan, to develop a kind of inward toughness, a strength. And this means persistence, being able to move through all kinds of things in a flexible kind of way, not giving up when the going gets rough. In, a sense, in that sense, one is the master of every situation. One is thoroughly responsive. And yet at the same time, to develop, <clears throat> to exhibit or manifest uh, a humility, a self-effacement. These seem like two uh, self-excluding qualities. But in reality, they are not. A person who is his own man, as the saying goes, who knows where he stands, has absolute confidence, and yet there's nothing of the braggart, there's no, over, uh, no pride, no overweening self-assurance, there is, a, there is this quality of self-effacement. It's a beautiful combination. And it must be said for Zen, uh, for the state of, of, of Japanese Zen, that it has produced over the years many such people. And even when this person was in Japan, one could see a few such people. But today, as Tanganoshi told our pilgrims when they visited him, the sun is setting on Japanese Buddhism and it's rising on Buddhism in the West. This puts a great responsibility on all of us not to, not to be swayed by so much negativity that we may see or hear about in Japanese Buddhism. Our problem is to develop in the West a pure Buddhism, 
Otherwise, it would be very difficult for Buddhism really to take off, particularly in the Zen sect. During the persecutions of, <coughs> during the persecutions of Buddhism in China, 1840 and other times, 940, always the Zen sect came out the best because at least in those days, it was, of all of the Buddhist sects, it was the purest in the sense that the monks could live simply. They simply went off to the mountains. They had a strong practice. And when the difficult times blew over, a new king came in. He was favorable to Buddhism. They returned to the cities and wherever they were and continued to practice in their own uh, simple way. Because simple here uh, doesn't mean simple-minded, of course. <clears throat> it will be many years before real masters develop in the West. But they will come. And it's up to us to lay the proper foundation in the way each one of us lives his life from day to day. <coughs> we'll stop here and cite the four minutes.